My, my mom has been, for me, one of the principal disciplers in my life. She has her whole life pointed me to Jesus and helped me grow in my faith and, and him. And as much as I um, value that and appreciate that, I also recognize that my life has been invested in and spoken into by a number of, of women, from Sunday school teachers to youth group volunteers to friends to um, people in a small group, and I want to say to all of you here today um, that whether you are a mom yourself or not a mom, uh, the way that you invest in our church, the way that you invest in the lives of others, the way that you point me and others to Jesus matters, and I'm grateful for you, and I want you to feel celebrated this morning um, because you're a part of this kingdom work that God has called us to in this community and I am particularly glad that you are here with us today. Uh, it was just about a year ago at, at this time that a friend of mine who he teaches a world religions class at a local community college had invited his class. He called me and said, hey, would it, would it be okay if I invite them to come and experience one of our services. As a part of their curriculum, they would go to a variety of different places and experience um, different worship and different religions and then talk about and process. And he said, I'd like, if possible, if, if we could sit down with you for like 30 or 45 minutes after the service and let the kids ask questions. I was like, I'd be happy to. I ordered some lunch and sat out by the fireplace with this group of, of, of 10 or 15 kids or so all over the map in terms of like their faith background. Uh, one student was coming in, grew up Jewish, um, was kind of um, more operating out of kind of an agnostic mindset in that stage of her life. Um, there were other kids that did grow up in various denominations and Christian churches. Some were atheists. There were a couple Muslim kids. Some grew up with more like an Eastern Hinduism kind of experience. And so they were, they were coming with their questions. They wanted to ask, why, why do we do things the way that we do it? And in the background of, of their class, they were asking essentially a, a question. Most of their questions were coming at this from a variety of different angles. Is How do you relate to God in this system, in this format? Right? If the dictionary definition of religion is an institutionalized system of faith and worship and practices, then, then what is this quote-unquote system? And then what role, in particular they were interested, what role does Jesus fill within this, this whole structure, what you guys do and why you do it? According to a study I read recently, in 2015, 84% of the world's population uh, identifies themselves with an, a, a religious affiliation. What's interesting about that is while we sometimes kind of in our little slice of the world, we'll talk about how church attendance and, um, and religious affiliation is, is declining across the world, it's actually increasing, it's going up. The reality is that the vast majority of people living on earth, they claim some level of religious adherence in order to answer life's most foundational questions. Most notably, I think in... in one form or another, essentially, well, who is God? And how can I know this God or be in a relationship with this God? As Paul writes to this group of, of Jesus followers in the city of Colossae, a city that was kind of 
positioned in such a way that uh, there was a lot of, of traffic through there. So they were surrounded by kind of all sorts of different perspectives and views and answers to these questions. Paul wants to train them up with regards to answering who is God and, and how do we relate to him. And he says in, in really no kind of uncertain terms, his answer to both of those questions is Jesus. And he has said it over and over again. In fact, look back at these verses. Remember, we're memorizing Colossians 1, 15 through 20. How's everybody doing? You getting it? Uh, okay, I'm going to take that as a cautiously optimistic. Uh, um, I'm, I'm through like verse 17 and getting into 18 now. So um, we're, we're getting there. We've got a couple weeks left, but I'm confident we can do it. Look what he writes in, in, in the verse 15 here, describing Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, then jump down to halfway through, or, or verse 19, he says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I think that's the thing which, which the early church, the modern church, and probably every church in between finds too good to be true. Almost like difficult to believe. Because what Paul is saying is, is he has done it all. It is all because of him. There's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing that we need to avoid doing in our efforts to reach, reach God. Jesus has done it all. So if, if religion, by the, the sort of dictionary definition form, if that's how we're talking about it. If that is our efforts, our attempts to make our way to God, Paul's answer is Jesus is God reaching down to humankind. The problem is, if you're anything like me, is that while I might acknowledge that and recognize that, it's, it's very easy for me to revert to some form of adding achievement to Jesus. Like, it just feels like it's wired into my DNA, right? Like, it's got to, I have to bring something to the table here. And Paul keeps combating that idea. It's like my grandpa, when he bought a computer, set up the computer, I got it going for him, explained to, I turned it on, log in, all this stuff. A week later, I find him in his office using his typewriter. He's like, this just makes sense to me, right? Like, I... My, he said, my typewriter never crashes. I was like, fair point, Grandpa. Paul is, and now at this point in, in this letter to Colossians, he's going to get specific with, with regards to this temptation, the various forms and ways that the church might be tempted to revert to a Jesus and, and some form of human effort. Something that we add to Jesus to make ourselves acceptable to God. I'm going to go back a few verses. This is in Colossians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, let's turn there together. I want to jump back a couple verses to where, where Joe left off last week because Paul's connecting these ideas. So this is Colossians 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. And he says, and you, When you were dead in trespasses... 
and in the uncircumcised of your flesh, so the uncircumcision of your flesh, so you're existing outside of the family of God, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now look what he says. He says, because of that, because of that victory, he says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are all human commands and doctrines. All these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, severe treatment of the body. We'll talk about that in a minute. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Again, remember this whole line of thinking. When we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, this whole line of thinking is rooted in, in verse 4. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm saying all of this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Right? That, that when you hear it, sound like, eh, that kind of makes, makes sense. And he begins, as he confronts this idea of Jesus and some form of human achievement, he begins by confronting the idea of Jesus and what you do. Jesus and what you do. I, um, I, was, I grew up in the church in, in the 80s, and um, I know that dates me a little bit. In fact, just word of advice. My daughter went to the American Girl doll store recently, um, and with some of her friends, it's kind of nostalgic or whatever. The new historic American Girl doll, born in 1999. That is offensive. Um, but I'm apparently really historic. And when, when in the 80s, there was this whole debate happening around styles of worship in the church. There were, there were those that really preferred kind of the traditional organ hymns. Like they, this was what mattered. And there was, at the time, kind of a younger generation that was really pushing for a more contemporary experience and it got it got it got heated at times um, and people had strong opinions in fact some people have called it the, the worship wars um, in fact just this drum sitting over here like that would have been kind of a a point of contention for a while and what was fascinating about the whole conversation again i was i was a teenager at the time so i i my level of paying attention was limited but you got the sense that there was kind of coming from both angles. There was this sense of those who take Jesus seriously. Those who really get it. Like those that really want to be all in on their faith. They're going to worship this way. 
right? Despite the fact that Jesus said, I want worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, but also in this style or this form or whatever, which when we start laying that over kind of worship across the world, like we can identify that makes no sense. But the heart of kind of the argument was like those that are really committed, those that, that are invested. Look at the first warning that, that Paul offers here back in verses 16 and 17. He says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in a matter of festival or new, mo- new moon or Sabbath. They're a shadow of what is to come. The substance, the substance is actually Christ. So here Paul identifies these external worship practices that were established in an Old Testament law. There was restrictions around food and drink and participation or adherence to these Jewish holidays, which which Paul will um, list in descending order from annual celebrations to monthly all the way to weekly, to the Sabbath. And he says, don't, don't let anyone judge you according to this standard, right? Don't let anyone judge you based on these external faith practices. Now, to be fair, if you had grown up in a, a Jewish home, your experience of relating to God your entire life had, had been described by, defined by many of these very experiences that he's talking about. Like these were the things that distinguished you as a part of the covenant people of God, you're in relationship with Yahweh. And so now after you've, you've come to believe that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah and you've placed your faith in him, you can see kind of the natural tendency to kind of cling to both of these things. Beyond that, you you may have even felt some compulsion or a need to help those who are coming to faith in Jesus and don't have that background. To know the the practices that have been so meaningful in your life, the observances that helped you understand who God was and begin to add them to your faith in Jesus. So it would be natural, reasonable, Paul says, to begin to think like it's Jesus in these dietary codes. It's Jesus in these religious high holidays. That's what saves you. But notice how Paul distinguishes these religious practices from Jesus and Jesus alone, verse 17. He says they are a shadow of what was to come. The substance, Paul writes, the thing that is ultimately real is Christ. The rituals and the dietary laws, they were, they were never ultimate reality. Jesus is the ultimate reality that the shadow is revealing. In other words, it's always been pointing to him. Adding external practice or behavior to Jesus for your salvation, Paul says, is grasping at shadows and expecting to take hold of something real. Paul, by the way, he makes this point by illustrating his own life and the letter to, to the Philippians. He's like, if it was about religious observance, if it was about that form of human achievement, nobody outdid me. In fact, flip over there, like just two pages, back to Philippians chapter 3. Look at what Paul writes here. This is verse uh, 4, like halfway through. 
He says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Uh, uh, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, regarding religious observance, a Pharisee, like wholly committed. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, he says, blameless. I had every external accommodation. But he says it was all a shadow of, of the real substance. He says, everything that was given to me, I now consider loss because of Christ. He goes on, he, he talks about all of these credentials, all of these uh, merit badges that, that he claims, and he says they're absolutely worthless, they're garbage. In fact, the word that he uses in the Greek is a bit more, um, yeah, colorful than, than that. I'm not going to say it on Mother's Day because uh, <laughs> I'll get in trouble, but, but Paul calls it for what it is. And he said, so that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law. That got me nowhere, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Right? Paul has come to the awareness and now he instructs, he's come to this awareness himself, and now he instructs the church in Colossae that there is no external religious observance that makes you righteous. There is no moral line that you have to follow that gives you accreditation to make you holy. That is Jesus, and it is only Jesus that has the power to do that. That's not Jesus and what you do. He's saying don't, don't settle for a shadow when the substance, the reality that casts the shadow is available to you. The, the reality that has erased the certificate of debt, he says, with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and it's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He's saying, don't, don't let somebody add something to what Jesus has done. Secondly, Paul Paul addresses this idea that the form of human achievement that you need to add to Jesus is Jesus and what you experience. Jesus and what you experience. Verses 18 and, and 19. It says, For I have often told you, and nope, I'm in the wrong book. Let's turn over to Colossians, shall we? <laughs> Colossians 2, 18 and 19. All right. Let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. I know, I'm, again, I, I keep using these kind of like nostalgic illustrations, but uh, in my teenage years, like indoor malls were a thing. And, and sometimes as teenagers, you would just go there just to be there. Like you didn't have any money, you weren't shopping. It was like you'd hang out at the mall. I don't know if there's an equivalent of that now, but that's, that's what we did. And they would have all these little uh, kiosks that were out there. So there's like carts in the hallway of the mall that sold all kinds of trinkets or whatever. And in the, the 90s, they, this, uh, they're called audio stereograms, these images that repeated, it was a repeated pattern over the course of the image. And if you stared at it long enough, a 3D image would emerge. 
So you would look at kind of this. Have you ever seen these things? You'd look at this thing and you would like, if you were supposed to really focus like in the center of it. And when you focused in the center of it, you did that for long enough, you'd be like, oh, there's, there's a whale there or whatever. Like it would start to come off the screen. The problem was it, I could never get there. Like I could stare at that thing all day. And like my friends are all like, oh, do you see that? I was like, yeah, yeah, I totally see that or whatever. I'm like, what did you see? Because that's what I saw too. I saw that as well. Like I was, there was some, they were having this experience that I was not having. And this is, this is similar to what Paul is addressing here. In fact, notice the core argument. That at the core of it, he's saying there's, there's what you, you lack something in addition to Jesus. There's something you still lack. And in this case, they're making the argument that it was this deeper, this mystical, mysterious experience. In the first command, he says, no, don't let anyone judge you. Now he says, let no one condemn you. And then he restates the central point. He's saying, you are already in Christ. You're a part of his body. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. There's all kinds of, of debate and speculation about the, the, the specifics of what Paul is addressing here. Some would argue that, that there was a teaching that suggested that in order to come to Christ because of our unworthiness and sin, that we needed angels to mediate on our behalf, to like, kind of go before us, put in a good word for us kind of thing. Still others um, point to a practice where, where there was a type of fasting that you would participate in. And in that fasting, it was supposed to evoke for you this, this heavenly vision wherein you would be made aware of, of deeper meaning and mysterious truth. What is evident, no matter the specifics of it, is that the claim suggested that there was some type of mystic experience that was necessary. Right? Yeah, that, that you lack this deeper experience. And remember, like this is all of these are arguments that Paul said sounded reasonable. As a youth pastor, uh, years ago, I had a student who, who came to me and you could tell she was kind of distraught, like wanted to talk. And so we were sitting down and she was reflecting on, on how she was experiencing her faith in, in comparison to kind of what she viewed among her peers. She talked about like this retreat that we've been on and it seemed like, and there was all these kids and they, it seemed like there was so much emotion and there was passion and they were just like, seemed like God was so real to them. And there I am, I'm sitting there and I, I feel like I've, I'm open, I want to meet with God, but I'm not, I'm not having this big emotional experience. And she's like, Am I, is this doubt? Is this, is God distant from me? Like she's just wrestling with all this. And I, I was, remember talking to her because one of the things that began as we were discussing it, I was like, I think you might actually be maturing some in your faith. Not that this comparison thing is immature, but it sounds to me like the source of your faith is becoming more about what you affirm to be true and less about what you feel to be true in a certain moment. And, but she, she compared that to everything that she saw with her peers. And it, the, the, the thing that she believe, began to believe was that it was something that she lacked. Have you ever felt something similar? Right? And look at Paul's response to this. Look at, at the end of verse 18 and 19. Paul says these, these people are they're puffed up with claims that they, they're a product of their own imaginations. It's, it's a... It's of the unspiritual mind, Paul says. And you know how you know that? 
Because it's attempting to convince you that there's something lacking in Jesus. That there's something that, that you need to add to Jesus in order to be found acceptable by him. Verse 19, he compares it to this group of people by making the claim that they're like a, a headless body. That they have attempted to supplant Christ as, as the head of the body. So he's pulling on that language in, in 1 Corinthians 12. But Paul, his contention is that when the body has Christ as the head, and when it's connected by the ligaments and the joints in community, that's when we experience and it grows with a growth from God. Right? The argument that there is a deeper mystic experience that you need to add to your faith in Christ in order to be confident of your salvation is itself a delusion that finds its origin in what Paul calls the unspiritual mind. And it's just another attempt that he wants to expose as, as Jesus in some form of human achievement. And Paul reverts back to the old line. He's saying, Jesus needs nothing added. He needs nothing added. Finally, Paul confronts the idea that it's about Jesus and what you don't do. It's about Jesus and what you don't do. Look at verse 20 now. He says, If you died with Christ, the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is, deter uh, what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although they, these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility and severe treatment of the body they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence now paul's is is speaking to going after specifically these aesthetic practices aestheticism is is a form of rigorous self-denial in order to obtain righteousness so it's that idea that i have to be presentable to God, and I'm going to do that by what I don't do. This is what I need to add to Jesus. You've maybe heard me say before, I had a neighbor years ago that when I found out I was a, a pastor at the church, said, okay, oh, you are those, you're the people who don't drink or smoke or have sex, right? And I was like, well, I wouldn't exactly describe it that way. Like, that's not... And again, like this is her idea. She, she, her sense of what we were known by was what we don't do. Here in Colossae, it's, it's rooted in this view that the material, physical world is corrupted and evil. And so you, you, you need to add to Jesus this rejection of the material world. Don't handle and don't taste and don't touch. Right? In this view, God will find you acceptable. You, you can be purified based on your avoidance of pleasure extreme forms of asceticism people would actually uh, harm themselves cause physical pain as a means of earning god's favor but once again that's just i mean listen to this that's just an effort to add human achievement to grace and when we add human achievement to grace any form of human achievement merit to unmerited favor, right? It becomes based on our own merit. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians. 
chapter 2. It is, you are saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift. Not from works, so that none of us can claim the credit. None of, none of us can boast about what I bring to the table or what I've uh, put on my spiritual resume or how the manner in which I have made myself acceptable to a holy God. Paul says this is the gospel. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's what Jesus has done. And Paul says all this other stuff, it's human commands and doctrines. It, it has a reputation for wisdom, he says, by promoting self-made religion false humility, severe treatment of the body. But notice how he ends here. They are not of any value for curbing self-indulgence. In other words, Paul's saying they don't transform you. They've never tra they don't move you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Only, only Jesus and Jesus alone can do that. He's saying don't, don't add something to, to what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he offers you. And I know when we're, again, I'm following Paul's line of argument, but there can be kind of this check mark in our head that goes, like, well, what, what do we do with Christian living? And, and I mean, we've talked before about, okay, what, let's live in the way of Jesus and how we view people, how we relate to each other, how we relate to our world and obedience and, and all of that. It's not as if that conversation has never come up here. But Paul is saying that is not what saves you. He, he is saying it's not the thing that you need to add to your life in order to be made acceptable before a holy God. Only Jesus can do that. You see, it totally changes the motivational center of my heart. Because when I come to the conclusion, when I come to the understanding that there is nothing that I bring to the table, that it's entirely Jesus, that's the only claim that I have. Now, instead of trying to make myself acceptable to him, right? I, I, instead, I get to live out of gratitude and appreciation for him, for what he has done for us. Do you see the difference? Because it, it matters. Look what he says. We're going to start here next week. He says in verse 3, So if you've been raised with Christ, seek things above. So we're going to start talking about how do we, how do we see, seek things that are above? I'll, um, I'll wrap up with this. I, uh, you know, sometimes pastorally, I have the opportunity to be with people in some of the best moments of their lives where there's joy and celebration and, and sometimes in the most difficult. And one time I was, um, I was with somebody when, when they were in the last few weeks of their life. They knew there was nothing else that could be done outside of God just miraculously restoring them they knew that they would pass away in in a couple of weeks and we were sitting together and talking and and um he said something to the effect of i hope so and so who had passed away before him i hope they put in a good word for me and and it was just the two of us there and i just said can i ask you about that because i said that's not who you need to put in a good word for you and in, in fact you don't need them to put in a good word for you I was like, when I find myself in, in this same situation you're in, we're all going to get there eventually, right? And I know that, that I'm looking at eternity. The 
only answer that I have as to why a holy God would find me acceptable, the only thing I can lay on the table to offer up is Jesus. It's just Jesus. And, and that is my only claim. That's the only thing that I have. And he looked at me and he said, can I use that? I was like, yes. Yes, you can use that because it's, it's, for, it's for you. He's done it for you. This, I get to walk him through the gospel and, and, and pray together. So this is, this is what Paul's pointing to as it relates to what saves us, where, where we have our hope of salvation. So don't let somebody convince you to add something to Jesus because that's man-made religion and, and it doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. God, I just thank you for, for Paul's passion. He just, he holds nothing back as it relates to just redirecting our sight to you and what you have accomplished. And we have no other claim. Nothing that we add, no human achievement. Lord, we live for you because, because of the cross, not, not to get to the cross. And so God, I just pray that you would remind us that you have taken on the full account, the full debt with all its obligations and its accusations, and that you've nailed it to the cross. And that we would place the entirety of our hope in you. That we would be found in you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. That's it. Right there. It's, it's, that song says it all. And uh, I'm so grateful that you have worshiped with us. I'm so grateful that we can say, it's just Jesus. He's our all in all. Um, on your way out this morning, we have our, our little magnet calendar things for you guys. Grab one of these. I think we have enough for one per family. So take that home and, and put it on your refrigerator. We also have these as kind of a, a postcard. So uh, those are out in the lobby as well. If you want to um, invite a friend, leave one with a neighbor, that sort of thing, uh, we've got plenty of those uh, here as well. You can take pictures at our little photo booth out there if you want to get a good Mother's Day shot this morning. Um, we'd love to have you do that as well. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ who is the one who has taken it all on, paid our debt and our obligations and won the victory so that no one um, can condemn us. Lord, we are in you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.